This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Edward Hess. He's a professor of business administration at the Darden Graduate School of Business, and he has a brand new book out called Hyper Learning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. And in the book, he talks all about how work has changed over time in recent history, especially this year, but also previous to that, and how we as workers, knowledge workers, creative workers, human workers, can become hyper learners, a person who excels at learning and unlearning and relearning different things as we pivot throughout our career. And in this conversation, he and I talk about what humans are better at than technology and the technology just isn't there yet. What types of technology are going to be able to come into play that will do things that humans can do now, but they'll be able to do better than us. We're going to talk about exploring the unknown and really lean in on those things that only humans are going to be able to do well for a long time or at least a little while. But ultimately, that skill of hyper learning. So this is a thinker. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ed Hess, and I know you will, too. So I'll get out of the way and just say enjoy this conversation with Edward Hess. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Ed Hess. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Eric. Wonderful being with you. I don't know how often I have actually talked to somebody who's in the academic world, but it's filled with smart people. And I count you as one of them because I've gone through a number of the things that you have written and talked about in terms of technology and where we're headed and especially how that applies to work. And that's really the the interesting topic of the conversation right now, especially in recent history, is we're relying an awful lot on technology right now. And and you've kind of seen this coming for a while. I, I would love for you to maybe uh, paint the picture of where we've been recently and where we've especially been in very recent history in terms of technology and human learning and hyper learning, as you call it. Well, from a technology standpoint, I guess for, you know, you can go back a decade or so. We've been on a path of technology becoming an integral part of our lives, all right? Whether it's from the uh, phones, whether it's from the pads, whether it's from social media, um, in the workplace, it's basically you're you're having, if you will, automation. Uh, Technology is automating more and more jobs and, and, and will over the next 10 years automate automate significantly more jobs than has ever been automated in this country. So technology's on an arc. It's on a growth plane that's being fueled uh, by capital and brain power. 
that is it's going to completely transform how we live and how we work. And in some ways, uh, what's coming is is mind boggling in other ways. Um, it's slower than many people have predicted up to this point, but it's coming. And so going forward, it won't be that long before we humans will have tech have, if we want to have technology embedded in our bodies, helping us think and helping us regulate our emotions and helping us communicate with other, uh, human beings. Over the next 10 years, you're looking in the United States automating 25 to 47 percent of the jobs. And so you're looking at basically human beings are going to have meaningful work if if we can do the type of work that the technology is not going to be able to do well. And that basically is three types of work, being able to think in ways that the technology can't think, being able to be really good emotion, at emotionally connecting with other human beings in the uh, creation and delivery of services and products from a business bureau, but being able to relate to human beings. And then the third job, types of jobs or trade jobs that require uh, iterative, if you will, iterative learning, figuring out what the problem is, then iterative solving the problem with manual and needing physical manual dexterity. And the automation that is coming is going to take on the professions. There are going to be very few professions that are that are not going to have some automation. It's happening in the medical fields. It's going to happen in architecture, happen in law. It's going to happen in uh, every business. It's going to happen in the finance fields, media, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're back to the point is, OK, what do we humans do? How do we have meaningful work? How do we have a, a meaningful life? And basically, we'll have meaningful work if we can add value in ways that technology can't. And the big challenge, Eric, is is that the way we are wired as human beings, the way we operate, the way we learn, does not really enable the highest level of thinking and engaging that's going to be needed. And so we human beings are going to have to transform ourselves, all right, improve ourselves. That's the concept of hyper learners in order that we will be able to, if you will, have meaningful work in the in, in the workplace. This is a major, major issue. And I've, I've been writing about it for some years. And the focus of my new book, instead of writing about it solely from an organizational viewpoint or a policy viewpoint or governmental viewpoint or social viewpoint, I'm writing about it from a personal behavioral change viewpoint. How do we human beings, how do, how do we basically improve ourselves so we will have good work? And what does what does that mean? And it involves behavior changes and, and it, it really ties into your program because it, it, it involves taking on daily work on oneself, which takes time, but which you have to do in order to go out in the world and be highly efficient, productive uh, and add value. And so we're really going to have to do more work on ourselves in order to be out there to go do the work in the in the outside world. And that's that's the big change because we all have grown up, you know, believing you your schooling stops at high school or stops at college or maybe stops at a graduate degree, but whenever it stops, you're sort of set for life. Well no, that game's over. Nobody's set for life. I'm not set for life. You're not set for life. I'm you know, I I'm gonna have to continually upgrade my skills. You're gonna have to upgrade your skills. Everybody's gonna have to upgrade their skills. That's the new game we're going into. 
And I don't think there's anything that's going to slow down the technology. In fact, the technology is probably going to come faster and faster now since, in effect, there is a global competition as to who's going to lead the world in artificial intelligence, whether that's the United States or whether that's China. And so I just think that the, what we're seeing and what technology can do from a uh, artificial intelligence viewpoint, from quite frankly, from an emo- the beginning of the emotions viewpoint, from creating new knowledge, from big data, um, we're, 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 we're on the blast off point. We're fixing to have a big blast off, like the rocket ship is, is launched. Well, let's talk about that technology uh, for a moment and then move into hyper learning. I am curious, you, you talked about some of the ways that humans can think and uh, work with other humans and, uh, you know, identify and solve problems. Let's start with that first one, though. Uh, ways in which a computer or technology can't think. What are some of those strengths where... Uh, humans have the ability to think that that computers and technology don't at least don't yet have the ability or may never have the ability. Innovative and creative thinking, imaginative thinking, making moral judgments and going into the unknown where there's not a lot of data and figuring things out. In other words, technology needs lots of data in order to think. And so going and exploring the new, the novel, all right. It's exploration, discovery, the arts, going out and talking with customers and figuring out what they really need and creating new products. All right. And being able to have those discovery types conversations, which technology is not going to be able to have because technology is not going to be able to read emotions and read body language and basically intuitively make leaps and jumps. And so it's it's fundamentally higher order thinking, um, higher order thinking when critically, morally, innovatively, creatively thinking where there's not a lot of data. All right. Where you don't have a lot of data Two, going into the unknown and figuring things out, discovering things, doing experiments, designing experiments. Uh, that's that's where humans are going to be needed. That's the type of thinking the more complex thinking where there's not a lot of data where it's where it's where the algorithms are are you know it's you're going you, you when you go into the areas where there the algorithms haven't been written because you don't even know what it is you're talking about until you discover things or until you create things or until you try new things and get data does that make sense that's yeah that totally makes sense love it and of course some of that maybe encroached upon by technology becoming more powerful, but I'd love your opinion. How likely is that, that that any of that, that you just spelled out is ever going to fully be taken away by technology? Whenever I hear the word ever, I've learned, (laughs) I've learned learned in my old age to be cautious. Uh, (laughs) I think that some of the, the brightest people in, there's, let's just say, Human beings operate in three different modes, cognitive modes, emotional modes, and behavioral modes, all right? From a cognitive perspective, traditional cognitive psychology, traditional metacognition, and traditional thinking, all right? You know, uh, A plus B equals C. I mean, technology will excel at that. Technology, and the reason I'm, I'm, I'm cautious is 
Technology also can write its own algorithms and figure out, if you will, games. You know, I mean, the the the, the technology that that beat the Go champion in the world uh, was able to teach itself Go, which is one of the most complex games in the world. Okay, uh, was able to teach itself Go by itself, and so from a you know, and so that is sort of evidence that. Technology can go into go into the unknown, but technology was able to do that because it was the data on how Go would operates. In other words, there was lots of data on how people play Go. It was able to use that and create its its learning algorithms. And so, will technology be able to um, go into the unknown where there's very little data? And nobody knows and then sense and relate with other human beings to the same degree. I think it'll be a long time before that happens. That's that's the real difference. The, the real differentiator between us as human beings and the technology ultimately is going to be our emotions, our ability to generate positive emotions and to emotionally engage biochemically with other human beings. Now, there's a caveat to that, that. Technology is working on trying to do that itself because it's come to the conclusion that just like cognitive thinking is is nothing more than algorithms with data, that emotions are biochemistry. And if we can basically figure out the, 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 the genetic makeup of a human being, we can figure out how to basically create biochemicals, um, if you will, in a machine. But I think it's also for the near term, the emotional part, engaging with other human beings, making those connections and those relationships. And that's going to require a different attitude at the workplace and a different culture in our country from a competitive culture moving to a collaborative, cooperative culture, uh, which is much more what our ancestors had when uh, they left the rainforest of Africa and had to go into the savannas of Africa. They, they, they succeeded because they collaborated with each other. We humans are going to have to excel at basically managing what's going on inside of ourselves, managing how we think and how we listen and how we relate and managing our emotions and being able to generate positive emotions and and unhooking the automatic link that some people have between emotions and behavior, manage what goes on in our mind. All of that is going to allow us to emotionally engage if we do that work at a level that it'll be a long time before the machines get there. But the machines are, you know, there are people who believe that there's nothing that a machine will not be able to do better than the human than we humans can do. In other words, there's there are people who believe that machines will be able to do everything. And I'm not there on the emotional side. I'm pretty close there on the on the cognitive side and then the unknown is, is the is the sole savior for humans. And I think that's, you know, that highlights some of the other things you were saying about things that that humans can do that that technology can't uh specifically uh working with humans or or empathizing um managing emotions, managing in general, uh you know, yeah. when, whether it comes to managing a team or leading a team or project management uh because all of that in, in, all of that involves emotions and uh, multiple variables uh, in and of each person, let alone all the variables put together in one big soup of a of a team, right? 
Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that's and that's that's where the workplace that's where the workplace is going to change over the next decade in that almost all work that can that's let's just say linear, it's gonna be done by technology and humans are gonna to have to do the hard type of work. That requires the science is clear that we human beings are suboptimal learners and no one can excel at learning by themselves. And so that means small teams and uh, small teams are going to be the organizational structure, small groups of people solving problems, small peeps, groups of people going out and exploring the unknown, going out and talking with customers, uh, et cetera, and ex- exploring, discovering and innovating, et cetera, meeting customer needs, creating customer needs, et cetera, illuminating customer needs. And those small teams are going to have to be a very special type of team. The most effective teams the science shows are teams that optimize collective intelligence. And that requires teams that care about each other, people that in teams that care about each other as human beings and trust each other. So building, caring, trusting teams is going to be a human capability. It's pretty hard to you know, it's, it's someone could make the argument, well, we can probably, you know, create machines that don't have to be caring, trusting because they don't even know what trust is and they'll cooperate with each other. Well, I'm not smart enough to be able to visualize that. All right. I, I don't see that happening in, in, in the, the next decades. And uh, and so this whole concept of instead of in and notice what I'm emphasizing with 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 you and and with your your listeners, the game of competition in the workplace ultimately is going to become the game of, if you will, collaboration. All right. Then it's going to become otherness that we need to basically play well with others in the sandbox in order to basically make the new castles out of sand. And that's going to change have to and that's going to require cultural change cultural change in companies but also require us human beings to further work on ourselves if you will to take ownership and manage our inner world what goes on inside of ourselves our ego our mind our emotions you know our body so that we basically can bring our best self to that conversation Every day. And if it's 10 conversations a day, try to bring our best self every day. And those in, in those conversations to be productive, to be highly productive, all of the corporate politics and all of the games and all of the one upmanship and all of the ego and all of the fears has to be mitigated. And that's the human work that has to be done. That's the human work that's going to differentiate the humans from the machines and, and quite frankly, differentiate the humans that excel in the workplace from the ones that don't. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. 
In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity, from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and I'm intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com, to learn more. The other key term here is is hyperlearning. And again, we, we've mentioned that term a couple of times here. In fact, that's the name of your book, Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. I love that tagline, adapting to the speed of change. I mean, hyperlearning is way more than just learning how to adapt to the speed of change. There's a lot of components in that, especially uh, when it comes to a lot of what you've listed off already. But uh, when you talk about hyperlearning, what? Uh, what, where are we at right now with that? I mean, I, I think there's probably a majority of people who aren't in that hyper learning phase or in that uh, adapting to the speed of change phase, but there, there have been some that have gotten there or some that are on that track. Um, I'd love for you to maybe spell it out a little bit more clearly or, uh, you know, succinctly for, for those of us who don't quite yet understand what that hyper learning means. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. Well, first, let, let's define it. And let's talk about when I use the word hyper, what I don't mean. I don't mean sort of the modern slang of, you know, someone being edgy or nervous or, you know, uh, uh, fidgety. All right. Um, I'm using the word hyper from from the Greek word hyper, which means oh, over and above. So I'm talking about the highest level of learning. And then in order to continuously learn, you have to unlearn what you know, what you think you know. And that takes us into the science of us, the science of you, the science of me. And what does the science tell us? The science clearly tells us that we are wired to go out into the world and we are wired to seek confirmation of what we believe or think we know. We are wired to seek affirmation of our ego, and we're wired to interpret the world so it is consistent with what 
are stories of how the world works. We are one big prediction confirmation machine. All right. So and the science also says that when I go out in the world and look at, say, something, I see what I believe. And when you, Eric, go out in the world, you see what you believe. And if we have different backgrounds, different training, different upbringing, et cetera, different cultures, whatever it is, you and I can go out and look at the same thing and see different things. All right. Now, that's the way we're wired. So we're wired to be fast, efficient thinkers because our brain is so small and it burns up so much energy when we use it. We are wired not to use it. And that's where all of this automaticity comes from. Well, all of that gets in the way of learning because learning occurs when you change your story of how the world works. So I've got to basically realize what is my story? Why do I believe this? What am I basing it on? You know, it's interesting. I probably have asked thousands of executives in workshops. How do you think? How do you think? And I pause. And I said, what, what comes to your mind? And the number of people who say things such as, well, it just happens. It just pops in my mind. Uh, it just comes naturally. And, you know, I don't have a lot of people who sit back and say, well, I ask myself, what do I think? Well, I think this. Then I ask myself, why do I think that? What data do I have that justifies that? What data negates that? And more importantly, what data, if it existed, would mean I'm wrong? Have I looked at that data, looked for that data to see whether that data exists? So people try to drill down to understand why they believe something. The number of people that actually do that is my experience, and it's, it's you know it's probably three thousand people, but so it's not a large number. It's not it's not big, but because we tend to be reactive, we we tend to be efficient processors, and so we've got to basically transform ourselves to where we are actively thinking and being open to changing what we believe, because we've gone and found data which basically says. We should modify what we believe. Now, the big problems and challenges for us human beings is, are the following. One, we're wired to be these efficient machines. Um, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel laureate, um, probably the best book on, on thinking, Think Fast and Slow, um, says that, you know, we're, we're lazy thinkers. We're efficient, lazy thinkers. We've got to basically overcome that. But in, a, in addition to that, we've got to understand how we put ourselves in a frame of mind to be open to unlearning. How do we basically feel comfortable with the fact that I may not know and then have a way of going to figure out what the data is and what I should do? And so that's a whole process. And so what gets in the way of that is ego. Many of us have been raised in school systems where we were taught that we were smart. Well, I'm sure you were smart, Eric. You were in school. You know, how did how, how was smart determined in school? By grades. Grades. And who were the smart people? The ones who got the good grades. That's right. And if you got the good grades, it means it means you didn't do what? Fail. Yeah, you didn't make a lot of mistakes. You got the good. You got the top grades on the test because you made the fewest errors and mistakes. And 
All right. Since you got all of the ego strokes with the A's and the stars and the, you know, bells and whistles and walked around and, you know, all of us do this. Okay. That are, that, that are, that, you know, are smart. You know, everybody tells you you're smart and, you know, it starts going to your head and you start defining yourself by what you know. So if somebody comes along and says, I disagree with you, many people's immediate reaction is what? Deny, defend, deflect, attack back. All right. I know this. I'm right. I got to high grade. Well, all of that gets in the way of unlearning and learning. This 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 approach in defining oneself as smart by what one knows. If we go into the digital world and the definition of smart is how much one knows, we will definitely lose to the machines. Smart machines will know more data, have more data, know more facts than any human will ever, ever, ever ever even come, even a small chance, small dose of it, all right? We can recall data, but then a lot of times we recall it and it's mistaken because it's laden with emotions uh, or it's intermingled with other stuff. So we're very inefficient in, in this type of defining smart this way. So our ego is involved in being smart. Well, we need to redefine what smart is, and that's the new smart concept in the book. Then the second big thing is Fears, fear of making mistakes, fear of making mistakes. I did. I studied Intuit Inc. and wrote a chapter on them in my book that uh, came out in 2014. And Intuit went through putting in an innovation system where they empowered every employee to go do experiments, to go discover, to do the things that the technology can't do. And and they basically, as a company policy, announced no longer will the word mistakes be used in Intuit. When you have an idea or you believe you're right, you have a hypothesis. You go out and you test your hypothesis. And when if you believe if you do A, B will happen and B doesn't happen and C happens, you don't have a mistake. You have a surprise. You have a result which is different than you expected. That's a surprise. From now on, all mistakes in, in it are going to be called surprises. So you learn from the surprise and you iterate. That's the type of thinking that we need as we basically go out there to how do we learn and unlearn. We have to basically approach, we have to define our ego not by what I know or how much I know, but by the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. My mental models, my stories of how the world works are only my generalized story of how my world works. It is not reality. I am not my ideas, and I must decouple my beliefs, not my values. My beliefs are ideas from my ego. I must be open-minded and treat my beliefs, not my values, I'm talking my beliefs, as a hypothesis to be tested and subject to modification by better data. And my surprises are opportunities to learn. That's a new approach. That's a new approach to learning. That's a new definition of smart that gets away from the fixation on knowing because In the new world we're going into, you and I have to excel at not knowing. Let that sink in. We have to excel at not knowing and figuring it out and figuring it out. And we need to empower every human being with the power to be able to say, I don't know, but I'm going to go figure it out because I have this way of figuring things out, which is basically the scientific method. Try to figure out 
what I believe is true and what must be true for that to be true and what could prove it wrong and go do an ex- go do a little test, a little experiment. And so that's the type of thing where the unlearning and relearning comes in. And in order to optimize that from a human perspective, the book, half of the book is about a new way of being in the digital age, human being, a new way of being. And the other is the new way of working. The most critical part of this new way of being is to take ownership and manage our inner world, our ego, our mind, our emotions and our body so that we can be in pursuit of what I call inner peace. We can come to the workplace, come to the table, come to the conversation with a quiet ego, quiet mind, a quiet body that's calm and a positive emotional state. It is then and only then that a human being will be still enough and calm enough to basically embrace the world and our most non-judgmental, fearless, open-minded way with a lack of self-absorption. It is then and only then that human beings can think at their highest level or perform at their highest level. It's just like when athletes get in a state of flow. All of what I just was talking about is how we human beings get in a state of flow with other human beings in learning, in thinking, in listening, in collaborating. When, you know, you've been in a state of flow, I'm sure, in your life. I mean, you know, most people have been in a state of flow, maybe with athletics or whatever, when, you know, you feel so into something that you lose sight, you lose sense of time. And it's like your whole body is in it. Your whole you is in it. And things just sort of on automatic pilot. You're going. That's the highest. That's when the highest levels of human performance occurs. And the challenge for human beings is to teach themselves how to get into that state. And the challenge for organizations is to create the environment where teams can get in that state, what I call collective flow. This doesn't sound impossible, but it sounds like, yeah, it's not impossible, Uh, but it does sound like it's a lot of work, especially in, in a sense that we're not used to doing it. It's new skills. It's uh, a new way of doing things as opposed to the old way as you know, you were talking about unlearning and then new learning. Um, Uh, Yes, it is. It is work. The nice thing about it is, is that, you know, you can go back to the great Eastern and Western philosophies 2,500 plus years ago. And the work that we humans need to be today about managing our inner world is the same work that's been that's been done by the great philosophers in the different philosophies, Eastern and Western, for over 2,000 years. And what it really takes is is reality therapy in the beginning. You got to accept the science. You got to accept the science. This is the way we are. And you got to create your why. Why should I change? And you got to come up with a compelling why. If you have a compelling why, then you'll undertake the work. If you don't have a compelling why, you won't. Uh, That's my judgment. And that's what so far I found through all my workings with people on this. And there's a process that, that, that can be used. And so and it's a, and you, you start out you start out with fundamentals. You start out with fundamentals. And it, it all comes down to that you work on yourself every day. You, you, you start working on what type of behaviors you want to change. My my philosophy is good intentions are not enough. It's it's all behavioral. Ultimately, thinking, relating, communicating, collaborating, it's emotionally based, but it is evidenced by 
emotions chemically, but it's also evidenced by behaviors. So it really comes down to how you behave. And people can basically go in the book and take the hyperlearning behavior diagnostic and figure out which behaviors they need to improve. And if they're like most of us, there's a lot of them. And then you prioritize them and the book tells you where to start. And then you basically start working on behaviors on a daily basis. But it really all starts in, in the morning. And that people that are really good at this, people that have been on the journey for a while, people that have succeeded on the journey, a commonality is what's called daily intentions. And that you start out each morning, first thing in the morning, and you, you people will work up to this and you spend at least 30 minutes at a minimum. All right. 30 minutes at a minimum working on yourself and reading your daily intentions, which is your short list of how do I want to be in the world? How do I want to behave? What are the key things I want to do that I've learned I need to work on? And then you look at the science and everything. Uh, most, Most people engage in the following and the numbers can range. When you start out, they'll be lower and people that are have been doing this for years or decades, the numbers are higher. But let's just take a uh, 30-minute daily inclination, daily intentions, I'm sorry, daily intentions, 10 minutes of mindfulness, mindful meditation, five minutes of gratitude practice, giving gratitude to the people who've helped you in your life or the people in that, uh, you, that you owe, owe thanks to, that you haven't thanked, gratitude for being alive that day, you know, uh, <laughs> you know give gratitude for waking up. That's one of the things that I do. Five minutes of deep breathing exercises and then 10 minutes going down your list of I intend to act this this way today and visualizing how you would do that. And if people do that 30 minutes every day, okay, they will see change. All right. The science is clear. Now, people will advance as you get good. Some people advance it up to an hour a day. And because as they're going, they're getting such positive feedback from their experience out in the world. But it all comes down to how do I become very, how do I become more productive? Okay, what's the way I can do this and be in focus from a granular behavioral basis and improve my behaviors, improve how I approach the world, improve how I listen, how I collaborate, improve how I emotionally connect and work on that. And will you be on that journey for the rest of your life? Yes, but you will make leaps on that journey and you will be able to excel uh, at a level that you are not. most people are not excelling at today. The book has in chapter two about almost 30 pages of distillation from the ancient philosophies and great modern thinkers and modern learners about what they do. And out of that, people can choose and create their own. This is what I'm going to do, taking into account the behaviors diagnostic. So the book is a very how-to book. It's really a workbook embedded in a book with reflection times and workshops with deliverables, which takes you step by step as to how to get on the path to hyperlearning. And so, again, it's a learn-by-doing book. It's not just a book about ideas and concepts. It's a workbook embedded into a book. And those are the most powerful books I have found. And in fact, it kind of mirrors what we've been, how, how this conversation has been, where at first we're talking about what the problem is and, and what our options are and why we need to do that, but then moves into the practical of how to start hyper-learning, how yes. to start unlearning as well as learning. And and I really love the daily intentions, uh, wrapping it all up. Of course, 
there's so much more that's in the book than than we even talked about here. Uh, I would love to point people to where the best place is to get it. If there's any preferred place that you know of, or if it's just the the place that uh, is nearest to them or online. Obviously, all of the major booksellers have it uh, online and the, the bookstores. You know, so people's choice there. I'm very grateful to my publisher. It's the first time they've ever done that. They created a PDF called My Hyper Learning Journal. It's free. It can be downloaded so people can either do it digitally or do it physically, use it as a workbook physically or digitally. And it's 143 pages long and it's got and it's got guesstimated number of pages you need for each each reflection time and each workshop to help people guide them through and, and with plenty of space for conclusions, for checklists. And then throughout the book, there are templates which can be used. There's a critical thinking questions checklist. There's a reflective listening checklist. There's a caring, trusting teams checklist, et cetera, et cetera. So there's um, insights, discoveries, questions to ask yourself. And so there's lots of how-to stuff which people could just take to critical thinking questions, all right, and type those out on something and then put it on a three-by-five card and they could go into a meeting and, you know, check themselves. Have we thought about these things? Have we asked these questions? Which one have I not asked? The reflective listening, how to listen, how to basically not be making up your answer when the other person is talking, how not to automatically critique the other person when they stop talking instead of instead one should ask, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Is this what you meant? Or this is what I heard. What am I missing? Because the number one thing that shows somebody that you care about them as a unique human being is, is that you listen to them. And so if you're if you're basically a reactive teller, T-E-L-L-E-R, as soon as somebody stops, you tell them what you think. If you're a reactive teller, what does that say? That says that you're more important than me. You, you don't even really know whether you understand what I meant. And so there's so much in the book that's come from decades of work with organizations and people. And, and it's all science based, but it's very uh, it's very practical. It's very how to. And that's that's what I wanted to do. That's uh, uh, not just talk about concepts, but how you operationalize it behaviorally. How, how do you, how do you behave? You know, psychological safety is one of the most fundamental psychological concepts. The great work of Amy Edmonds uh, that is necessary in organization. OK, I understand what psychological safety is. People need to feel safe. Well, how is I managed? How I'm a manager. I'm your manager, Eric, or you're, you know, or you're my manager. Let's, you're my manager. How do you need to behave so that I trust you? How would you behave for me to feel that Eric cares about me? And how many people have sat down and have thought this through? How would I behave to show somebody I care about him? Or how would I behave in order for people to believe I trust him? What would I do? I mean, you can say I trust you, but words are cheap, right? It's behaviors. I, there's so much more. Uh uh, obviously, than just the book. It's the workbook. It, the, people are going to get a lot out of this. And uh, so I will make sure to link up to this and uh, to, to the book as well as straight to your site for when people buy it to grab the workbook uh, in the show notes for the episode. And uh, Ed, it's been great talking with you. This has really been uh, thought provoking and eye opening and and honestly, it's not just it's not just about the thinking. <laughs> There's some stuff to to check on and and dive into and then start learning to do here. So this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Edward Hess. Like I said, it was a thinker. There's a lot to think about in terms of this future moving workspace. It's not something to be afraid of, but it's definitely something to prepare for. And I highly suggest getting the book. It's really interesting. I'm going to go back through it because there's some really key pieces in there for me specifically. I'll link up to that in the show notes, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com. That's also where you can share the show if you found benefit in this episode and you'd like to share it with your friends, your audience, someone you know that needs to hear this conversation. Would you do me the favor of sharing it? You can hit that share button over there again at the show notes or right here in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening to this. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next episode.